Good morning, Ryan. Good morning to the world. This is Andre Gonoela, and we are here with Friday's edition of What in the World? Ryan, what time is in Colorado right now? Are you in Colorado? I'm in Sri Lanka, so it's 6.50 in the morning. I'm so excited to be able to talk to you bright and early. Well, I'm excited to talk to you, Andre. You're, you're across the world. I'm actually not in Colorado anymore. I'm in uh, southwest Missouri. Um, so it's 8.25 p.m. We are, this is, I think, our first attempt at really across the world podcasting. And it's, it's kind of a mess so far, but I think we're doing okay. <laughs> Andre, what's going on in Sri Lanka right now? Well, it's raining pretty heavily right now, but uh, I mean, uh, it's fairly interesting being here in Sri Lanka in the middle of the pandemic. I mean, two weeks ago when we sort of booked our tickets to come here, I mean, we knew that the COVID was sort of happening and the cases were going up, but right now the cases are like peaking. The cases are virtually at their spike. And what Sri Lanka is basically doing right now is they're reopening the country but they are really racing with the vaccines. So Sri Lanka is really disseminating these vaccines very, very quickly, and they're relying almost completely on foreign donations of vaccine, primarily foreign donations of Sinopharm from China, about maybe 1.5 to 2 million Pfizer vaccines from the United States, maybe about 3 million or 2 million Moderna vaccines from America as well. But, I mean, the vaccine diplomacy stuff that, China and the U.S. have been engaged in has really helped save a country like Sri Lanka because I, I don't think this country can necessarily stand a lockdown economically. I mean, th there is literally a problem right now where as soon as they came into the country, a lot of these folks are seeking the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar because there is literally no U.S. dollars in any of the bank cash reserves. There is none. So they want tourists and other people like us Americans to come in because we're going to spend our U.S. dollars and we're going to exchange it for Sri Lankan rupees and we're going to you know, bring some U.S. dollars back into you know, the financial system of this country. But with COVID sort of peaking, I mean, this is basically we're at the peak of COVID in terms of this pandemic in Sri Lanka uh, all time. Uh, you would expect there to be lockdowns, but I think right now the government recognizes they can't do a lockdown economically, so now they're just racing with the vaccine. And I mean, they're, I mean, the vaccine efficiency and the speed is quite remarkable, to say the least. I think right now they're outpacing Israel uh, with the Sinopharm vaccines they have now in terms of the numbers they're able to get vaccinated. But a, a key problem has been they'll often inoculate people with these first doses of vaccine and then they'll run out of the second dose batch. So, for example, my uncle right now, he's in the ICU with COVID, and he had received the first dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine in March, but they had run out of the second doses. And uh, they are just bringing those second doses right now in July. They're giving those second doses out because the shipment or something did not work out. And you're sort of seeing this play out, which is fairly concerning. But, I mean, at the end of the day... What China is doing with vaccine diplomacy, with donating the Sinopharm vaccines, is very effective because that is what's saving smaller countries like Sri Lanka. Uh, but of course, a lot of people here do want to wait for U.S. vaccines, which they deem as higher quality. Yet, for some reason in Colombo, it's a Pfizer vaccine, a Moderna vaccine, it's harder to come by. That might be a Sri Lankan problem, but... 
I don't know how long it's going to take COVAX or whatever these COVID vaccine international organizations are to actually get these vaccines into the arms of people because we're hearing about 500 million, a billion, 200 million being donated. But where are the vaccines? <laughs> right? Where, where are the vaccines? Yeah. No, so I'm, I'm glad you're on the ground there. One, of course, to be able to see your family after such a long time. And two, you're really seeing firsthand China's uh, a vaccine diplomacy effort. And recently I saw that they, they said they'll provide 2 billion vaccine doses to the world. It's including $100 million uh, of donations of COVAX. And so this is about competition, right? Vaccine diplomacy competition with the United States and other leading Western countries. And so, you know, of course, the, the Chinese effort is um, a strategic one, right? Because given the COVID-19 pandemic, they're uh, attempting to kind of restore their standing on the world stage. And Certainly, it's been it's been incredibly problematic. Um, so when you're tying the COVID diplomacy with um, like Belt and Road Initiative, where you're having this massive investment around the world, Sri Lanka is a country where it's, it's a prime example. And I mean, Anja, I don't know what what are your thoughts on the actual implications on the ground for the Sri Lankan people, but also for the politics of the country? Because I think if you look from a case study perspective, it's it's you know it's a great example. I mean, it's very interesting, right? But I mean, being on the ground here, this vaccine diplomacy is saving the country's ass right now. I'm serious. Like, there's no way this country can do a lockdown, so they're relying on these vaccines, and these donations are coming in from China primarily, some from the U.S., but a lot of the ones we're seeing in Colombo is Sinopharm. My entire family who are getting vaccinated, they have been inoculated with Sinopharm, the Chinese vaccine. So it's going to be very good politically for China. I mean the government of Sri Lanka, the people of Sri Lanka will see that China is saving them from this pandemic. And sure, the U.S. is also sending these vaccines, but it seems like there's a level of vaccine that a lot of the folks I'm talking to, they can't get Pfizer or Moderna here. Pfizer and Moderna are going to other areas, but the people in Colombo, the power center, are getting Sinopharm. And I think that's very telling. That's very interesting. And, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, honestly, I think it's going to have positive political implications for China. I mean, I was just going down the road the other day and I saw this big port city that China is building off the coast of downtown Colombo. They're basically creating land in the ocean and they're going to create this new financial center. So, I mean, you know, we have criticisms of it in the U.S. because of debt trap diplomacy and stuff. But I mean, frankly, here, being here, you see it as development. You see it as development. You see a bit more Chinese people, obviously, because they're the ones who are actually coming and doing the work here. But uh, I mean, I think it's definitely going to have positive implications for China. Trust me. Oh, no, I, I imagine so. So, Andre, let's kind of move forward and talk uh, about a country in the neighborhood of Afghanistan. Uh, there's a lot mm -hmm. of developments in the past week. I mean, the first and foremost is, is that the Taliban have captured a province, a province capital in Afghanistan, which is a, just a huge victory. It's not, you know, a, a sensitive military victory, but a symbolic victory uh, for sure, just because as we've seen since the U.S. announced a withdrawal, the Taliban have just resurged in capturing cities across the mm -hmm. country. Um, on the bright side, we've seen more and more interpreters, those who have helped the U.S. effort and the, the NATO effort in Afghanistan are now getting pathways to come to the United States and other friendly Western countries which, of course, is something you and I have talked about week over week on the podcast. Um, but, uh, you know, another interesting development is that the, the Taliban have said that they killed the Afghan government's top media officer. And so, 
I mean, like any conflict, we know that hearts and minds are just are crucial. And so when you kill the media uh, officer, I mean, again, for, for, for those of you listening, this is not, you know, some, you know, sort of, you know, peaceful transition of power in Afghanistan. This is, a, it's a bloody war. The, the Taliban have been seeking this opportunity ever since the United States announced their invasion of Afghanistan, and now the opportunity is present. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there was also the bombing right outside the acting defense minister's home in Kabul. And now Kabul's largely been spared of a lot of the uh, the severe violence that's been happening as the Taliban virtually takes over the country. I believe there was another major city that's been sort of subject to a lot of this fighting. And the Afghan government forces basically told people, hey, if the Taliban's overrunning your area if the Taliban's in your area, leave. That's a very hopeful message from the Afghan government. And you can clearly see who's going to win. I mean, the U.S. has not necessarily given up on uh, negotiations, the peace negotiations with the Taliban, but I think it's pretty safe to say that the Taliban's going to take over the country. I, I really don't see any reason to doubt that. Right. I mean, there, there's no clear path by, by which the uh, Afghan government can, you know, peaceably take the country. I mean, so there's going to be conflict and the Taliban have the manpower and, and the drive to do it. And so it, it's going to be a long conflict for, uh, for the Afghan government with the Taliban. But I think, uh, Andre, I just want to bring this up quickly because I just saw it. Uh, Russia is inviting China, Pakistan, and the United States to a, a multilateral meeting on Afghanistan. And notably, they've excluded India, which you know is mm-hmm. it's quite interesting just because India, of course, is a, a crucial player in the region, although not you know, having direct interest uh, in Afghanistan, of course, they, uh, they're, they're a strong presence there. And I'm certainly sure that the, the Indians are not very happy that the Chinese and the Pakistanis are, are invited to this and they're not included. Yeah. There's also another big meeting that's happening right now uh, between the leaders of five Central Asian countries who are all fairly close to Afghanistan uh, that occurred within Turkmenistan. Uh, uh, many of these leaders are, of course, concerned that the violence in these provinces that border their own countries might spill over. So you're now starting to see a lot of countries take notice of this. You're starting to see a lot of countries, smaller countries, bigger countries, are, are big powers, like Russia, the US, China, India. And then these central countries, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, uh, really start to be worried because this could really spill over right i mean i mean afghanistan also borders india it does border china both india and china have a vested interest for their own national security their own domestic security in clamping down on violence in afghanistan especially if the country really goes haywire that not that it already isn't haywire but uh and then you're going to start seeing more of these multilateral meetings but i would say less direct intervention i don't think this will these meetings will result in direct intervention It'll be like more like how do we contain this explosion happening in Afghanistan? Not we're not going to stop the explosion, but how do we contain it so it doesn't affect us? How do we not get the fallout from the nuclear bomb that's basically dropping in Afghanistan right now? Yeah, I mean, that, that's the central question. And Andre, uh, because you mentioned Turkmenistan, I have to now bring up Gurban Guli Berdi Mukhamadov, the president of Turkmenistan, just because he was the first person we mentioned. On the first what in the world, he is the dictator of Turkmenistan and a fascinating and cruel individual. And so if you guys have not checked out some of the videos of him on YouTube, he also moonlights as a rapper, um, which is interesting. And he has an affinity for Turkmenistan's national dog. Um, I I can't remember how it's pronounced, but um, there are dog statues um, as big as buildings 
in Turkmenistan. So that's just the little lighthearted aspect of this whole Afghanistan saga. I'll leave it there. Well, thanks for the information, Ryan. Uh, that's quite interesting. <laughs> I'm just gi- I'm giving the people what they want, Andre. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, move on to the, the repeal of the AUMF. The Senate uh, has a bill to repeal the Iraq War Authorization, and there is GOP support for it. So we have bipartisan support for repealing uh, the authorization of the use of military force. The House passed uh, a similar a piece of legislation in, in, in June. And so it very much looks like that the, the U.S. government will not have the authority to keep uh, engaging in Iraq. And this is only for Iraq, is it? Is it what about the AUMF for Afghanistan? Yes, Andrew, there actually is an AUMF for Afghanistan. Um, 2001, after the United States was attacked on September 11th, uh, Congress came together and passed an AUMF. Mm, okay, very interesting. And there was also an AUMF, actually, for the Persian Gulf War in 1991. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, that's uh, a receding presence in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, again, you, you see Congress more and more hesitant to authorize military force in the Middle East. Yeah, absolutely. Well, not authorizing military force, drawing back on what's already been occurring, more likely. Right. Yes. Yeah. Ryan, there's another story that's been of interest. Uh, Tucker Carlson, who went to La Jolla Country Day at the school right opposite of where I live in San Diego, a very rich man, a guy who's been rich all his life. He's palling around with Viktor Orban of Hungary. For some reason, he took his show to Hungary to talk about how great Viktor Orban is. What is going on? Why? So. So it's, it's, it's a very, you know, kind of weird story that you have, um, you know, Tucker Carlson uh, giving a very, you know, big primetime interview to, to Viktor Orban. Of course, um, you know, we, again, we've talked about Viktor Orban, uh, the, the leader of, of um, Hungary, quite a bit. He is kind of the, the poster child for democratic backsliding and for kind of this, this authoritarianism that we've seen in the European Union, that and, you know, Poland uh, as well. And so, I mean, really, it, it just seems that, uh, you know, because Viktor Orban, you know, prides himself as being a an illiberal democratic leader, you know, democratic in in scare quotes, um, you, you know, and of course, you know, Tucker Carlson, of course, attempting to, you know, you know, bring forward this you know right wing agenda that they have, um, it, it's kind of like a match made in heaven, and so uh, Viktor Orban is you know quite popular in Hungary, you know, despite Hungary being a part of the European Community, being part of the European Union. Um, you know, the country is, is very, you know, conservative and they're, you know, the right wing parties are, you know, quite popular. However, that's not to say that he is leading a democratic country. It's certainly not very democratic anymore when he is, you know, kind of seeing, we're seeing these reversions in the judiciary um, by bring, putting his own people in. He's buying up the media with some of his cronies um, to control the narrative there. And so this is a, 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 you know, sadly, a brilliant move by Viktor Orban to kind of project his worldview. We've seen this, you know, this type of action happen in Russia um, and Poland as well. And so uh, Orban is just kind of, you know, writing the next page in the playbook. Great. So basically we don't have a, so the Reaganites in the Republican party are leaving, are going away. And we're going to start seeing the Orbanistas because, because apparently Orban is conservatism done right to some in the Republican mm-hmm. party. Uh, did you just turn, did you just coin a new term? 
Orbanista? No, I saw, I saw it on Twitter. Someone posted okay. it on Twitter. Orbanistas. I was going to be really impressed with you. I, I think it was Bill Crystal who pointed that term out. Orbanistas. They're taking over the Republican Party. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. But I mean, uh, I mean, there is, I think, some interesting polling, of course, though, on Americans' propensity to advocate for democracy, I think, on both sides. Right. I think more so now on the Republican Party, obviously, than on the Democratic Party. But there are some people who I think polling has shown that, you know, if their side is in power, they might not necessarily be fully in favor of democratic institutions and so on. And I think recent polling has signaled the alarm on that quite a bit. And, and this is sort of evidence of that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so we're getting close to the end of our uh, of our time here today. And, you know, I, I want to bring up the Olympics. Have you been watching the Olympics while you've been in Sri Lanka? No. No, not at all? <laughs> no, I really haven't. <laughs> all right. Well, so frankly, I haven't been watching the Olympics really either, but I do want to bring up a story about Belarus. Um, two coaches were actually removed from uh, the Tokyo yeah. Olympics uh, because we, we saw a, a, Bela, a Belarusian um, a, a Olympic athlete that actually sought asylum in Poland. Uh, interestingly enough, of course, you know, we've been talking about the regime in Belarus uh, for almost a year now um, because of the, the, you know, the, the unfair and unfree election that occurred in Belarus last summer by the incumbent um, Alexander Lukashenko, who has been ruling that country for decades. And um, of all these repressions we've seen from the, you know, the forcing down of an aircraft and over Belarusian airspace in order to arrest a dissident to the killing uh, of journalists and activists, um, not only in Belarus, but you know, around the world. And so, um, and again, last week we talked about Svetlana Tsikhanouskaya, the opposition leader who was in DC making her case to both uh, think tanks and the US government and, and civil society and the broader uh, Belarusian diaspora. Um, now we're seeing Belarusians fleeing the country. Um, so they're, they're trying to leave their country as quickly as possible through any border uh, by which they can get through. Um, and, and again, I think it's on the international stage, right? We've seen in the past uh, activism at the Olympics, and this is a form of activism to, to, to demonstrate to the international community um, the, the grave mm. situation that's occurring in Belarus. Yeah, I, I've been seeing some reports of that. I saw her sort of going into the embassy as well. I, I wonder how they're going to take it, how the government's going to take it in Belarus. How, how are they? Ta- what, like, what's this guy's reaction? I mean, he's a, quite a character, but has he given like any public comment on it? Um, so I, I haven't seen any commentary by Lukashenko himself. Um, I imagine the government, uh, again, right? They they see any sort of, of you know activism as um, you know treason, right? Exactly, as treasonous. And so uh, the the main problem for the opposition or just the you know the people of Belarus is that any sort of action they take in opposition to the government is seen as treasonous, and then they're able to be jailed um, without you know a a, a judicial system. Um, and so, you know, they're just kind of thrown into a paddy wagon and taken off. And many of them have been disappeared or killed and their families don't know much about what's happening there. And so really, um, you know, this opportunity being at the Olympics, of course, is an opportunity for this athlete to seek refuge. Might start having to watch the Olympics now. I, I can see the Russian Olympic Committee do their thing because they're not Russia. They're the Russian Olympic Committee. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, because of the doping exactly. Scandal. Yeah, right. The, yeah. I, there's a fascinating... Um, a documentary on Netflix called Icarus that you know you should all watch about the Russian doping scandal. So if you haven't seen Russia officially being in the Olympics, they were banned for this doping scandal, and so they're the Russian Olympic Committee, um, the ROC, and so which is you know 
for them, you know, they're, they're among some of the most competitive countries in the Olympics. And it's a, it's a pretty big hit for Russia. I mean, their, their whole mantra is patriotism and demonstrating to the world that Russia is still big and strong and important on the international stage. And when they can't officially represent their country, uh, that takes a big ego hit for Putin. Yeah, absolutely. Ryan, anyway, I think that's all the time we have for today. Uh, we have a great episode on Monday releasing with Pete Newell. Uh, Ryan, can you tell us a bit more about that episode? Yeah, so for, for all of you who have listened to our interview with Steve Blank, Pete Newell is actually his partner in the Hacking for Defense program. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a very interesting um, you know, program in the work that Pete does. Pete, of course, served in the U.S. military, um, had a great, very decorated career, and then since leaving the U.S. military, has worked with Silicon Valley on defense innovation. And so our episode is about both his military service, um, talking about you know, how, how the, the U.S. military was always on the cutting edge of technology, ensuring that their, their you know, soldiers in the field were equipped to, to kind of conquer any sort of situation. It's a, it's a fascinating episode with Pete Newell. Um, and again, it's a great extension from our episode with um, Steve Blank. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we'll probably be having more conversations like that, actually, with some entrepreneurs who have this background in national security and defense. So stay tuned for that. But Ryan, for now, uh, that's basically it, uh, folks. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, thanks for tolerating us a bit. I think we've had some interesting signal issues because Ryan's in the middle of nowhere in Missouri. I'm somewhere in Sri Lanka. So uh, you hopefully can tolerate this for a few more weeks and then we'll be back to normal. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. This is not our, our normal recording um, spaces nor our normal recording time. And so thank you all for bearing with us. And as always, we'll see you next week. <laughs>